Good afternoon. Welcome to the Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Um, and I'm your host, Jackie Kettler. And I'm your co-host, Jen Schneider. And we were listening to a little snippet there of the band Cumulus. They're playing tomorrow night at the Olympic. And they also played during Treefort on the Radioland stage. So if you happen to get around and see them, uh, then you have a chance to go support them again. I got to go to the Olympic for the first time this weekend. It was I really so like the Olympic. fun. Yeah, what a great venue. I really enjoyed that. It is a great venue. Well, uh, we should probably introduce our special guest today. We have with us Sean Gann from the Criminal Justice Program um, at Boise State University. Like us, part of the School of Public Service. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. And John, we're going to talk um, about some of your interesting research today. I think you're working in some really important areas that tend to kind of be overlooked often when we think about policy. And from my understanding, one of your research areas is uh, juvenile justice. Yes. Um, so what are some of the research questions you're interested in within that topic? Um, most of my research tends to revolve around decision making in the juvenile court. So what kind of what factors play into what juvenile court judges the decisions that they make and uh, the decisions that, that like probation officers make and, and, and things like that. Um, so a, a lot of it plays tends tends to focus on that. Um, but I I've, I'll, I'll look at um, a lot of other things in the in the in the juvenile justice system as well. Uh, specifically, kind of different pathways. A lot of kids that, that get mixed up in the juvenile justice system that you know get in trouble with the law. Um, they don't all, you know, come from poor families or come from, you know, using drugs or alcohol. There's a lot of different pathways into mm. juvenile justice. So um, a lot of my research um, looks at, at, at those pathways as well and kind of looks at um, how those pathways may, um, may, may lead them into um, committing crime as adult later on in their life. I feel like I should have a bell that I ring every time I have a dumb question. So, <laughs> ding! <laughs> I have one too. You do so. too. Oh, okay. I'm sure well, we'll compete. For that. Um, I mean, I I un I understand the difference between the juvenile justice system and the adult justice system. I guess in terms of like it's for two different age groups. Mm -hmm. But what are some of the other differences that would make juvenile justice different? I guess than from somebody like you or me who's old and screws up and goes, um. to, goes to jail. <laughs> Um, the the main difference, like you mentioned, is is age. Um, so different states have different ages of majority. Um, so if you commit a crime or delinquent act as a juvenile, um, you would typically go in front of a juvenile court, a completely separate court system mainly. Um, so different judges, different attorneys. Exactly. Different processes, rules, um, laws. They're, after the 1960s, juveniles that go through the juvenile court have almost all of the same rights, constitutional rights, as uh, an adult as you or I would if we were arrested and went to a court. Um, the only one that hasn't been to apply to the juvenile system is uh, the right to a trial by jury. Um, they don't have a right to a jury trial. It's just a juvenile court judge is the the, the decision maker in the oh, juvenile court. Interesting. So that's so the juveniles never have trial by jury. This is just they try uh, the different court. Uh, correct. Um, they and the only time that a juvenile or somebody that commits a crime as a juvenile would have a a, a, a jury trial is if they were sent to criminal court. Oh, interesting. Um, sometimes if they commit a crime that's you know more serious enough, a violent crime or something like that, the juvenile court will waive their jurisdiction and they'll be sent to the criminal court and tried as an adult. Interesting. So when you're thinking about judicial or decision making in these courts, this is the judge making a decision on the case on these on the cases. Correct. Yes. And so 
Um, courts usually often have sentencing guidelines, right? Um, and those are determined by law, I assume. Uh, state legislatures, state legislatures. Uh, in some states. Um, in other states, they actually have a sentencing commission that's uh, typically under the governor, uh, set up by, appointed by the governor. And that commission, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, their main goal is to, to set those sentencing guidelines. Um, Idaho is not one of the states um, that has sentencing guidelines, though. Um, we don't have sentencing guidelines here. No. Okay. Um, about half the states in the country have them, and we're one of the we're in the half that do not. And do juvenile courts have the same sentencing guidelines as um, regular typically courts? not? Mainly because another one of the big differences between the juvenile court and the adult court is the juvenile court is primarily, um, at least theoretically, is primarily um, rehabilitation focused. Um, there's there you're the the purpose of the juvenile court and the juvenile correctional system is not to punish. Um, it is to rehabilitate. Um, so you don't typically see, uh, well, one by law, you can't do it, but you typically don't see, you know, really long, multiple, you know, five, 10 year sentences, things like that in the juvenile system, uh, mainly because like, for example, here in Idaho, um, the juvenile court, the juvenile correctional system only has jurisdiction over uh, the youth until they turn age 21 at the absolute latest until they turn 21. Uh, after that, um, they would be dealt with in the normal, the, the regular adult system that, that you or I would interact with. So let's say that I, I don't know, I'm like in a three strikes state or something like that. I have the third strike uh, against me and I'm an adult, let's say for drug possession or something like that. This is probably going to make your head explode because I'm going <laughs> to ask this in all the wrong ways and you're an expert here. But so let's say I'm an adult, third strike uh, for the drug possession or something like that. Uh, what happens to me versus what might happen to a juvenile in the same situation, say, um, like hypothetically? Um, for one, depending on what state you're in, if for those for those three strikes laws, um, you could potentially spend the rest of your life in prison as, as an, adult. an adult. Yeah, mm -hmm. as an adult. Um, like I said, juveniles, um, if if they go through the juvenile court, if their case stays in the juvenile court, even if this is say the third time they've been arrested or whatever, as a juvenile would still be treated as a juvenile. Um, they could be um, uh, kept in a, in a secure facility, um, but they, like I said, at the, at the latest, they would have to be released from that facility by the age of 21 here in Idaho. Some states are a little bit different. Um, Arkansas, for example, where I'm from, uh, could keep custody, the juvenile uh, system could keep custody of uh, somebody until the age of 24. Hmm. Um, but Idaho's 21. Most states tend to be right around like 19 to 21, somewhere in that area. So. It's interesting. As, as a state scholar, it's so interesting to hear how much state policy can, and the structure of these systems can really impact and vary across states. Oh, definitely. Um, and that's for ad adults and juveniles. Um, both just you, you can't really say that there is a you know a criminal justice system in this country because it's you know we have 50 states we have 50 completely different criminal justice systems same thing with juvenile justice 50 states 50 completely different juvenile systems and on top of that most juvenile courts are at the county level so even within a state you may have you know dozens of different juvenile courts in the way that they handle cases and process cases um, yeah it's, it's, so it's it's very difficult to, to you know generalize um, over a wide geographic area. Interesting. So, I mean, for, for those wanting to reform the system, you're really looking at the state or even local levels. Definitely. Um, I, I think most reforms 
tend to start at a county level in the juvenile system. And if something's working, maybe a specific rehab program or something like that is really working really well, um, other counties within that state may adopt it. It may become a statewide thing and then may spread out. But it's typically any major changes tend to occur at, at, at at a local level first. I mean, the other thing that's blowing my mind is just thinking about somebody who tries to study these systems <laughs> and the patchwork of them. It must make sort of data collection and analysis so challenging. We're going to hear a little bit more about that when we come back f- from the break. You're listening to The Big Tent here on Radio Boise 89.9 FM. From Welcome to Night Vale, you're tuned in to Radio Boise, your source for music and public affairs programming in Boise and beyond. Hey there, you're listening to The Big Tent here on Radio Boise. It's Public Affairs Thursday. Uh, My name's Jen Schneider. I'm your host. I'm here with my co-host, Jackie Kettler, and we have a special guest today, Assistant Professor Sean Gann from the School of Public Service at Boise State. That's actually where we're all from. We'd like to focus on uh, local, state, national politics here on The Big Tent, and we're talking about... um, juvenile courts, mass incarceration, these areas of uh, research for you. And before the break, Sean, we were talking about the sort of patchwork systems. You were saying there are like 50 different uh, justice systems, if not more, one for each state, one for each local area. And then there's the juvenile systems, another 50 systems there. So talk a little bit about the challenges that poses for you as a scholar who does research in this area. Yeah, um, I, I was mentioning during the break a little bit that a a big project that I worked on um, a few years ago that we were collecting um, juvenile court data and arrest data on for, for juveniles from different police departments. So going out and collecting that, we had to go to, um, we ended up going to, I think, 13 different juvenile courts. Um, and, and juvenile courts tend to be at the, the county level, so pretty much 13 different counties throughout the state. Um, and then I think it was around 30 police departments and collecting their data and then trying to, to, to put all that together into one big you know, data set. I was going to say, but they're all is, different um, formats and some are oh, like on CD-ROM. Like um, yeah, and actually, we, we we actually did get a CD-ROM mailed to us for I some of the data. So yeah, um, because they was, don't they very, don't tend to have the m- most highly funded information systems, e- exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and then just just going through the you know the process of who do we contact to get the data? Will they even give us the data? Because well, when you're talking what... about juveniles, you have extra privacy issues that you have to deal with. So it's um, it it can be a very um, time-consuming um, task for if you're if you're working on a very a major grant or a big project like that. So. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask about was the privacy concerns with this population since they are um, juveniles or not adults. Consent. I mean, like with public records and stuff, it's different. But are some of these sealed? Like, um, and that's another thing that varies by the states. Um, it used to be most states juvenile court records were completely sealed. You, okay. you could not have access to them unless you were in law enforcement or the courts. Um, a lot of states are um, reducing that a little bit. Um, there's a handful of states now that um, they're treated the same as adults, at least if the, ki- if the, if the youth is like 16 or older, they'll still keep the, the 15 or below um, sealed. Um, so it just varies. And we were talking about the three strikes laws earlier. Some states that have those allow juvenile convictions or adjudications to be counted towards the th- three strikes. Some states don't. 
So it's it's um, it's very location dependent on exactly how uh, the juvenile system works. So and it I can become frustrating when you're trying to generalize. So I mean, I think it's significant, not just because I feel bad for you as a researcher <laughs> and the challenges, but uh, data is power, right? Data is that sort of provides us the information for policy making, for making certain problems visible. And it feels like to me, in the case of you know the judicial system or the court system, uh, mass incarceration, the sort of tracking those numbers becomes really important, particularly since over the last 40 years, we've seen a massive increase in incarceration rates. We've seen changes in the way sentencing is happening, appeals are happening. And if we can't track those things, we can't make good decisions about them. Yeah. Um, And a lot of the times, um, staying with juveniles, for example, juvenile probation tends to be a um, a, a county level endeavor. So you may have, you know, however many counties there are in a state, you may have that many different uh, juvenile probation agencies. Uh, a lot of the times juvenile corrections, like here in Idaho, um, institutional corrections, so secure facilities, that is a state level effort. Um, so That's it's giving it's, me heart palpitations. It's, it's, it's a lot easier yeah, to, to, to uh, collect data and, you know, to do research for, um, you know, best practices for institutional corrections than it is for for uh, probation uh, at, the, at the juvenile level, just because collecting data from, you know, X number of counties is difficult and, again, time-consuming a lot of times. And what's amazing, right, is if it's challenging for a researcher to figure this all out, like for those going through the system and everything else, trying to keep all track of all this, understand the process, would be pretty challenging. Yeah, it uh, it, it really is. That's um, Some of our research shows that that's one of the, the number one complaint that both that both the juvenile and the parents have, the parents of the juveniles that are going through the system, is they have no clue exactly, you know, what's 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 going on. Um, you know, besides they get handed a piece of paper that says, you know, show up to your next court date at this time or whatever. Um, it's it's um, the kind of the hodgepodge nature in a lot of places make can make it very difficult. Um, there are some juvenile courts though that are just absolutely amazing. The few that I've uh, worked with here in the state um, have 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 been great. Uh, I think technology has has helped this a lot. Um, instead of you know handing somebody a piece of paper that they're going to lose ten seconds later, versus <laughs> actually being able to send them an email or, or something like that, um, has kind of helped um, streamline, I guess, or, or uh, simplify a little bit of this process. But because it is such a location specific it can be very difficult especially like maybe somebody living on a county line where they may have you know interactions <laughs> with two different county courts or something know. like that uh that can become very difficult so yeah that's uh yeah um it is just kind of amazing right these all these systems that I, we have so little knowledge of for most most of us um and, and you're and you your research you still work with some large kind of groups of people and trying to research some of these questions right yeah um that uh, the i would still work with some researchers at the university of cincinnati university of cincinnati um mainly the, that big project that I was talking about a second ago, we, we collected so much data over the course of a few years of the data collection phase um, that we, you know, we haven't even really scratched the surface of a lot of the things that, you know, information that we have in there. Um, so we still, we still do a lot of research. Um, a colleague and I from there actually uh, just started literally yesterday uh, working on a, an, another paper about that, looking at, um, specifically looking at how race was affecting decision-making in the juvenile court, um, which in most places, 
uh, we tend to find that that race does have a, a significant effect in, in multiple decisions, not all by any means, um, but in a, a few of those decisions, like uh, more likely or you know less likely to have their case dropped, uh, more likely mm. to be sent to a secure facility if, if adjudicated delinquent than, than white youth. Um, so um, there's yeah there's there's a lot of information there and there's a lot of really good uh, juvenile justice scholars at the University of Cincinnati. Um, so yeah we we're we're still doing a lot of research and uh, probably will be to, honestly for the next couple of years. I mean we had that much information, but because of how you know again kind of how hodgepodge it is, um, it's taken a while to 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 write all these papers that. We were hoping to have, have finished a while ago. I mean, just for context, I'm looking at uh, sentencingproject.org, and they talk a lot. Of, they provide some interesting statistics about the increases in, in incarceration in the last 40 years. And according to them, um, the lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for U.S. residents born in the 2000 in 2001 for white men is one in 10, and for black men is one in three. And so, are some of the sentencing patterns you're seeing for juveniles? mimicking some of those statistics we're seeing on the imprisonment side? Um, yes, definitely with uh, the, the imprisonment side. Um, so pretty much at, at so for example, um, in, in one uh, paper that we looked at or that we, that we wrote, it was looking at how race affected uh, five different things. So did the kid have their case dismissed, just flat out drop the charges? Um, um, you know, were they detained prior to their trial, prior to their adjudication hearing, where they actually found guilty or what we call adjudicated delinquent in the juvenile court? There's a lot of different terminology. Um, and whether they, um, whether they were waived to adult court um, and whether they were, um, if they were adjudicated delinquent, if they were actually sent to a secure facility. Um, and we found that at three of those places that they were negatively, uh, non-white juveniles were negatively affected. Uh, they were less likely to have their cases dismissed. Um, they were um, more likely to be detained prior to prior to court. So you can kind of think of that as like in the adult system, like not being able to get bail. So you have to stay in jail before. Um, and then they were, if they were adjudicated delinquent, they were significantly more likely uh, to be sent to a secure facility instead of getting probation than, than white youth were. Um, so uh, kind of surprisingly, though, we, we see this in almost every single state in the country. Um, there's actually a name for it, Disproportionate Minority Contact, DMC, just saying that we tend to, that, that non-white youth tend to interact with the juvenile justice system more often than their white counterparts. Huh. Um, so it's, it's something big, and, and Congress has actually a, attempted to address this through, um, uh, through an act that came out in 1974, and they've um, re-upped it. I think four times since then, specifically trying to get that ratio lowered um, mm -hmm. because we do tend to see that. Like I said, in almost every single state, uh, you tend to see minority youth um, treated differently in the juvenile system than you yeah, do. Yeah, which has youth. just tremendous social on sort of social follow on effects. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, All right. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Sean about some of the work he's doing here in Idaho. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Tent. Hi, we're the Secret Light from Portland, Oregon. And you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise, community radio for Boise and beyond. <laughs> Get you 
Welcome back to The Big Tent on Radio Boise. I'm your host, Jackie Kettler. I'm here with Jen Schneider, my co-host. Um, and then we have our guest, Sean Gann, um, all of us from the School of Public Service. And one goal of the School of Public Service is to be more engaged with the community, contribute to um, the creation of policy, governance, um, be out serving our communities. Um, and, and Sean, I think you're doing some really interesting things in that venue and that you are currently serving on the Juvenile Custody Review Board. What is that? Um, yeah, so the, the, the Idaho uh, Juvenile Custody Review Board, um, by, by state law in Idaho, uh, if you commit a crime as a juvenile and you get sent to a secure facility, you have to be released by your 19th birthday. Unless, there's always a catch, um, <laughs> unless you, um, if uh, the, the, the Idaho Department of Juvenile Corrections and the staff believe that you need to remain to continue, pretty much to continue working on your program and continue working on your rehabilitation programs, things like that. Um, if that's the case, then um, they can, then they can uh, keep custody until the, until the age of 21. Um, so the Custody Review Board, our job is um, if a youth is coming up on that, that 19, uh, you know, that where they would have to be released normally at 19 years old, but the institution staff, they think, you know, that this youth may need to stay to get a little bit more treatment to, to maybe complete their programming or something, their rehab programming, things like that. Um, then they would come, the youth comes in front of, in front of us and f- comes in front of the Custody Review Board. And our job is to... Um, to, to look at their background, to look, we have a, you know, for, for each youth that we see, we have a very long, de- very detailed folder about their offense, about how they're doing in programming, you know, any victim statements, just the, the entire gamut, uh, typically a couple hundred pages each. Um, oh, wow. And, and our job is to, to determine um, whether, whether um, you know, the, the youth should stay in a secure facility to, uh, to be able to finish their programming. Um, so the, the, the goals of the Department of Juvenile Corrections is, um, you know, accountability um, and, 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 um, and public protection. Um, so that's the things we're thinking about is, you know, should this youth be, um, and competency, the, the rehab part of it, should this youth be, uh, you know, stay in, a, stay in a facility so that they can finish their programming before they're released. And that is our, that's our charge. And the, the the juveniles you're reviewing are those that the state thinks maybe needs to remain in the program. Correct. Okay. It's, it's the, um, the, the case manager. So every youth that's in a secure facility here in Idaho, they have a case manager. Um, they actually have a case management team, a case management or a case manager, a juvenile probation officer, and a uh, service coordinator. Um, so if anybody on that on their on their uh, management team believes that this youth needs to complete their programming, which to do that, they're gonna to have to stay past their 19th birthday, then they um, you know, let us know that we need to have a hearing for this youth, and that's our job, is to determine um, whether this youth should, um, um, should, should stay to be able to complete their programming. So you may not be able to answer this because you haven't done it yet, right? You start soon? Uh, no, I, I have. You have uh, done yeah, it, okay. Last month, <laughs> so if you're anything like me, your only interaction with like, review boards or parole boards in the justice system as lifetime movies and podcasts <laughs> and which most of them are very inaccurate oh good so. well that was going to be my question <laughs> oh, yeah. because it looks like either one of two things like either terrible injustices are meted out by review boards and parole boards like somebody's worked so hard and they've gotten their degree and they meditate and they <laughs> counsel other people and the review board says no you must go back like florida 
parole boards, right? That's what I have in mind. <laughs> uh, and then the other one is where they just are not doing, they're not paying attention and they let go a hardened criminal back out into society who murders people or something like that. Can you sort of like correct these horrible misapprehensions of mine fomented by daytime TV? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, first off, the, the, um, the adult parole board is, is drastically different from what we do. Um, so the, but most of the time in the movies and things like that, you see the adult side of it. Um, so, yeah, it, it really depends. I'm actually uh, in Arkansas, where I'm from originally. I'm a former parole officer in Arkansas, adult parole officer in Arkansas. Um, so I've gone through a lot of those parole hearings and revocation hearings and all that stuff. Um, but it's right now uh, in pretty much across this country, correctional systems are so underfunded. There's just so many people that are incarcerated or under on parole or probation um, that it's you, you tend to see declining correctional populations in the last decade or so simply because we don't have the money it's to not sustainable. To, yeah, to do that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these parole board hearings, I can't speak, I don't, I don't have experience with the parole board here in Idaho, um, but in, in a lot of other places, um, you know, they're just, they, they, they have to release people. They simply cannot put anybody else in prison. They don't have the bed space for them. Uh, there's constitutional issues that you have to consider. Um, so it's, um, not typically what you see on, on TV. Um, you typically, you know, you don't have the offender walk in and in front of a, you know, a really long desk that has nine people sitting there, the entire parole board. That's, that's very rare for that to actually occur. A lot of these are done by video chat, you know, today, uh, things like that. So it's, um, unfortunately, like most of the criminal justice systems, it's not exactly what you see on TV, um, especially forensics is nothing like you see on CSI. What? CSI is not correct? I'm kind correct? of diverting off topic You're making it just bit. sound like a boring but, committee meeting. <laughs> but it, 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 um, it kind of is, actually, mm -hmm. today's truth, um, that, that um, they're not, um, parole board hearings are not really that exciting. Um, custody review hearings... Um, they, they, they do have a lot of similarities with the juveniles, but like I said, we're, we're not a parole board. That's not our job. That's not our charge. Um, but it's, you know, not necessarily the most exciting thing in the world. It's not like, you know, you'd want to grab some popcorn and go watch these things by any means, but um, it's definitely a lot different. I guess unless you're the one who's being decided yeah, yeah, on, yeah, then yeah. it might be exciting then, for yeah, you. Yeah, for them, it's definitely yeah. going to be exciting. But um, yeah. but I think it's good to hear that it's a thoughtful review of a, of a massive file. Like, you're not just okay. take it, doing a whim on one sheet of paper yeah. or whatever. And that's, and that's one thing, while we still have a little bit of time, that's one thing that I've experienced in my short time here in Idaho that I've, I've worked with state agencies in four different states now, and the, the willingness of Idaho criminal justice agencies to work with academics to actually pay attention to the research, to implement you know, uh, uh, new programming and things like that based on research is unparalleled, uh, at least in my experience, unparalleled here in Idaho. They're unbelievably willing to, to, to work with us, to work with academics, to implement best practices. And that's that's something you don't see in a lot of states. Oh, that's so great to hear. Thanks so much for being here today, Sean. Thanks if you want to find out more about Sean Gann and his work, you can go to the School of Public Service website at Boise State University. You can find us on Big Tent Radio on Facebook and every once in a blue moon, Big Tent Radio <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, make sure to tune in next Thursday at 4 p.m. here in the Big Tent at Radio Boise.